Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture, and thank you for joining us, letting us be part of your day. We really do appreciate it. Hope you are safe. Please be careful as we continue through these um, unprecedented times. We continue to focus on various aspects of how our lives are changing and what we can do to, to help get through this. Uh, one of the big issues is getting food to people. We have food, but the challenge is keeping that supply chain open. We're going to talk about the transportation and supply chain issues today with Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. We'll talk with Arlen Suderman with INTL, FC Stone, and look at market reaction and uh, some other uh global implications from uh, this coronavirus and we'll also be talking today with Brock Slaybaugh senior vice president member services for the National Rural Health Association again look at how the rural health care system is uh, gearing up to deal with the coronavirus outbreak and we hear about these concerns about not having enough medical supplies, not having enough beds, uh, the system being overrun, those fears. We'll talk with Brock about that a little bit later on in today's program. We start things off, though, with Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report. Jerry, uh, I remember one time uh, being in Washington, D.C. when there was a big snowstorm and I looked out and the streets were empty and uh, no one was moving about. And I thought, wow, how strange it seemed to you know, see Washington D.C. look like a ghost town. Does it look like that now? Is is it? Are people staying inside like they're being asked to? Yes, I I would say that they are. It reminds me a little bit of what it was like after 9/11, uh, when it was so sad to go to the Capitol and find that there were no farmers or anybody else there to lobby, with the with the you know the halls of Congress absolutely empty. Uh, now the Senate is in. And as a journalist, I can go up there, but I haven't had any need to. So I've been sitting in my house uh, watching the White House briefing and receiving all kinds of emails about cancellations and concerns uh, and, you know, and writing from that. Uh, but the city is, uh, you know, it's pretty much shut down. Uh, uh, you know, the USDA people are trying to do their work from home. Uh, so that's. That's pretty much what it's like here. I know a lot of the focus at USDA right now has been on uh, uh, feeding children and getting uh, food to them because with school shut down, a lot of those uh, kids aren't getting the meals they would normally get. Uh, yes, that's right. And USDA has put out uh, uh, relaxed regulations about, uh, about, about school meals. And, of course, the whole point here is that the kids aren't going to school, but a lot of the poor children uh, still need food, and so there are pro- there are programs in which they can go and get what's called a grab-and-go lunch. But there are concerns that these uh, programs, which are similar to summer feeding programs, won't be big enough because those are only allowed in areas in which 50% of the children are eligible for free or reduced-price lunches. Now we're going to be in a situation in which, especially if there are parents who are unemployed, there are going to be more children who would be eligible, but so far there isn't a system for serving them. And, uh, you know, there's, there's talk about how to, de- how to deal with this, but no, but no plan yet. A part of this is 
no one knows how long it's going to go on, and it's hard to prepare for something that you don't know. I mean, it's one thing if you say, well, we got to do it for two weeks, two months, or whatever, but we just don't know. Yes, that's that's right. There is just in, uh, enormous um, uh, uncertainty here, uh, and uh, so far the food supply chain seems to be good, but I've noticed that now you know the Farm Bureau and the National Pork Producers Council have put out statements that they are very concerned uh, that the embassies, uh, the embassy and the consulates in Mexico, our U.S. consulates in Mexico are closing. They're not going to do any interviews for immigrant labor. Uh, the real issue will come, I think, if for if somebody gets coronavirus in one of these meat pro- processing plants. What would happen then? Will the plant have to be closed down? Will we, you know, wh- how will they, how will they deal with all the other workers in that plant who might have been exposed? We we just don't know these uh, we just don't know these things. Uh, one thing I might point out is about rural America is that the University of New Hampshire put out a study yesterday uh, that that showed something which I think is true everywhere in in the country. The percentage of people in rural America who are elderly is higher, but the number of people is not as high as the people in the cities. So this creates a kind of contradiction in medical system because the rural hospitals are under pressure although they don't have they probably won't be under pressure to serve as many people as the people in the cities but how you deal with all of this uh, just is a uh, kind of a mystery at this point yeah we're all trying to feel our way through this I was talking to somebody yesterday uh, it there is a little bit of uh, advantage being in rural America. It's a, perhaps a little easier to socially distance in rural America than if you're in the heart of a big city, although it sounds like people, uh, even in big cities, are finding a way to do it by staying away from each other. But, um, you know, it's it's a challenge because it impacts every aspect of our lives. I don't know that we've ever seen anything that totally shuts down everything the way this has. No, this seems to me to be a bigger a bigger challenge even than a than a war. Uh, one thing, one advantage I will say in rural America is people don't live on top of each other, so you won't have quite the same uh, uh, pressures. And also, I think in terms of commodity production, the fact that that uh, you know farmers will go in the fields, but it'll be one person on a tractor uh, planting. I think that, you know, all of that will go well. But in terms of the food supply uh, system, it were, it, the real challenges will be later in the production process, in the, in, the, in the processing of grain and the making of bread and all of that, uh, and, of course, the transportation of it. Uh, we, just, uh, we just have to, to uh, hope that will go well, but I do think the farmers will be able to provide the basic commodities that the country needs. Meanwhile, we watch, uh, especially in the Senate, to see what they do on these uh, various funding bills that are being proposed. Yes, at the moment, Senator Rand Paul of of, uh, uh, of Kentucky, who is always reluctant about these these bills, uh, is holding it up. Uh, and I think that this is going to cause a lot of criticism of the Republicans since the Democratic-controlled House was able to get the bill through on on Saturday night, and now Rand Paul is holding it up, uh, although I think Senator McConnell wants to try to bring it up today. Yeah. Uh, 
Senate Leader McConnell saying he will support the House's uh, corona, coronavirus bill. So we'll see if they can get that pushed through. All right, Jerry, thanks for being with us and uh, stay safe, OK? Thank you. You, too. And all your and all your listeners. Stay safe. Thank you. Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report. So we continue to look at the supply chain and being able to keep uh, goods and products and food moving. We're talk with Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. That's up next. Stay with us on AOA. Farmers can't choose the weather, trade policy, or market prices. But they can choose the most advanced dicamba with confidence. Ingenia Herbicide has the lowest volatility of all dicamba salts for more successful on-target applications. And it's straight from the dicamba experts, BASF. So make the confident choice for your soybean crop. Talk to your BASF rep or authorized retailer. Ingenia Herbicide is a U.S. EPA restricted-use pesticide. Additional state restrictions may apply. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Seems each day that goes by now, we realize things we used to take for granted, how important they are to us and how at risk they now are because of the uh, coronavirus outbreak. We continue to focus on things like transportation and food supply chains and uh, as we look at those situations, we're joined now by Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Mike, thanks for joining us. Uh, how has the outbreak impacted movement of uh, grain and goods in this country? Well, it, one of the things to, to keep in mind is that this is normally the time of the year where the, the, soy, the U.S. soybean spigot gets turned off, particularly for exports. And the South American spigot gets turned on. Um, you know, 80% normally of U.S. soybean exports occur between the months of September and February. So when we, when we see these weekly reports from U.S. Department of Agriculture and the you know, pretty scarce amount of soybean exports that we're seeing, that is pretty typical for this time of the year. Uh, you have a, a pretty robust harvest coming online from Brazil. Uh, you've got uh, still the persistence of African swine fever uh, that still exists, and that's resulted in demand destruction in China. And then also, you know, we continue to see the U.S. dollar significantly appreciate compared to the to the Brazilian real, which makes our exports more expensive, Brazilian exports more economical. You know, in 2017, one U.S. dollar would get you about three Brazilian reais. Now, uh, one U.S. dollar gets, will get you 5.07 Brazilian reais, so a significant strengthening of the dollar. That, that really has an impact on our ability to, to export. Clearly, with the virus, it's, it's having uh, an impact on mobility within the country. Um, that will continue to really wreak some havoc on supply chains, agriculture and otherwise. Um, but again, the, the, the main reason why we're not seeing significant exports of U.S. soybeans, um, it's just not usually our year for that. And so what we will really be mindful of is when you see our harvest start coming online later this year, that's, that'll be the real telltale sign of the strengthening uh, how strong our export program is. 
How vulnerable is our system? Well, you know, you know, certainly, uh, you know, with our, you know, with our infrastructure, you know, we, we do have some problematic areas. And then when all of a sudden, you know, it's this uncertainty that you really see, you know, with the, the coronavirus, um, you know, supply chains, you know, they're kind of like an orchestra. You, you, it's something that's choreographed. It's something that, you know, for it to work well, you have to have front hall and back hall movements um, working in concert with one another. Um, all of these assets, you know, whether it's a, a steel container, whether it's an ocean vessel, whether it's barges or, or freight rail or, or trucking, it it's all needs to be orchestrated. And so then all of a sudden you throw a big wrench in the in the gears, and this is what the coronavirus is doing. Yeah, it clearly is going to have an impact on on mobility. I don't think it's going to have as much of an impact on our ability to plant a crop this spring. But you know, when you start seeing the subsequent deliveries, the the soybeans to the processor, the the pro, the soybean meal to livestock facilities, and then the finished meat products, um, you know, clearly it's going to have a an impact, and and the, the the significance of it, the severity of it, that remains to be seen. But you you can't have some big stop sign all of a sudden get inserted into the U.S. economy and the U.S. society, the global society, and not to see an impact. We're talking with Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Mike, often when we talk, we're talking about the need for infrastructure improvements and asking you for updates on where we're at in in Congress to get the funding. Uh, Right now, of course, the focus is on funding for coronavirus-related issues and uh, trying to help the economy. Does this help or hurt the chances of getting anything done on, on infrastructure, you think? Well, I think it could be both. And I, 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 you know, clearly the what we're most mindful of is some of the, what are some of the immediate measures that need to be taken. So whether it's a you know, payroll tax holiday, whether it's some kind of infusion of, of money into various industries or just simply a, a rebate to you know, the general public, that's that's kind of the, the immediate stabilization efforts that Congress is, is focusing on. But I, I do think that when we're thinking about what we can do to help the U.S. economy rebound from this big shock that we're experiencing, I think infrastructure investment is one of the most effective ways of doing it. Clearly, when you build infrastructure, that's, that, that does provide job creation and job-sustaining kind of activities, so that's certainly helpful. But then when you have a better – when you invest in infrastructure – it basically is decreasing the cost of business, decreasing the cost of, of, of mobility. And that's, and that's going to apply to pretty much every individual in this country and every industry in this country because we all use our infrastructure. And so if you have the ability to get from point A to point B, whether you're, a, whether you're just a simple motorist, a commuter, whether you are transporting agricultural products or any other kind of freight, uh, or inputs or outputs or finished products, that's going to be a savings to your business. And so I, I think, you know, as we move forward throughout this year, if Congress really wants to provide a lasting impact on, on our economy, infrastructure investment's an excellent way of doing it. And when you've built this new bridge or when you've made this improvement to a lock, lock and dam, that's an asset that will not just provide benefit 
in the aftermath of the coronavirus, it's going to provide a benefit in year 2020, throughout 2020, 2021, and the years and years to come. So I think I think we, we should it'd be very wise of us to really make sure that we're prioritizing infrastructure during the course of this year. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's kind of the way I was looking at it. It may be put on the back burner for now while we're dealing with some other things, but long-term, and as we're looking for ways to rebound from this and no one knows how quite that's going to happen or what it's going to look like, but certainly you make a good point that infrastructure improvements could be a big part of that. Yeah, you know, we're clearly in the triage moment right now uh, with Congress. But I think when you start looking at, okay, what's as we stabilize things, what's going to provide more of the long-lasting health of the economy? You know, some of this infusion of money, it is going to help hopefully stabilize and, and kind of mitigate this downward spiral that we're in. But then infrastructure investment, it's, it's an asset that will provide benefit to the broader economy for years if not decades. And so I think that's a, that's, that's a real strategic way to improve our infrastructure and, and, and enhance the overall economy for years to come, and we're clearly going to need it. You mentioned the real challenge or the real test will come this fall, come harvest time. We hope we're past this, or at least most of it by then, but we don't know. I mean, this could linger that, that far. We, yeah, we clearly don't, and, and no one knows how you know deep the proverbial rabbit hole sinks on this. It is encouraging uh, to see you know from a variety of reports, not just government reports from China, that you're seeing you know activity resume. Uh, you're seeing you know the the number of new cases uh, being curtailed. Um, you know, even throughout the, the the darkest moments for for China, they still imported soybeans it just happened to be from brazil uh so significant amount of brazilian soybeans getting sent to china so it is encouraging to see where really what's been ground zero for this epidemic you're seeing some recovery from that so that hopefully will provide us some hope that um you know i don't know that there will be at least light at the end of the tunnel tunnel and it won't be too far in the distant future i've also been thinking about how fortunate we are going through this that we're a country that can feed itself. It has to be even harder on a country that is going through something like this, but is also dependent on someone else for their food. Yeah, it, 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 it really, you know, you never wish for these kind of experiences, but it does help highlight and it shines the spotlight on what are the things that are most critical and what really helps a, a nation be resilient and able to stand on its own two feet. Clearly having, um, Having uh, the ability to feed oneself, uh, that's really critical. And, and, you know, the fact that we've got, you know, most of our population continues to become more and more concentrated in urban areas. It is, I think we're all thankful in this time that we've got still a significant population in rural areas that is still well-equipped to grow the food that we ultimately eat. A lot of manufacturing activity occurs in some of these rural communities, so... We're really seeing you know, the, the importance of rural America during times like this. We're talking with Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Mike, thanks for joining us. Stay safe. Thank you. You too, Mike. Take care. Arlen Suderman with INTL FC Stone next on AOA.
Weeds want to restrict your freedom and crush the spirit of your soybeans. Never fear. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of superior weed control is here with Liberty Herbicide. Stand proud with greater application flexibility, unmatched convenience, and excellent performance combined with the Liberty Link, Liberty Link GT27, and Enlist E3 trait systems. And it has no known resistance in U.S. row crops. Talk with your BASF rep or authorized retailer about Liberty Herbicide. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, so much to talk about uh, with what's going on today with uh, COVID-19. Let's bring in Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for INTL FC Stone. Arlen, uh, hard, hard to uh, know where we're at or where we're going because there's so much uncertainty right now. From an ag market perspective, what's your uh, thoughts on what's happening right now? Yeah, the resiliency of the American farmer is again being tested, that's for sure. We do see some changes happening. Um, the first thing we happened, obviously, was a rush to safety in the markets as um, the funds, everybody just get out of the risk. Whatever, they're, if they had ownership in any market, just get out of that ownership. The safe side was the short side, so to speak. But now that's shifting a little bit, and now that everyone's got out, the funds don't make money just sitting there, and they're trying to find some way to create revenue for their customers. And so they're trying to anticipate what the fundamentals will be going forward. And so we're seeing markets move opposite of each other now, um, some directional move in some of the markets. First of all, we see a collapse in the corn market. Uh, we're seeing strength in soybeans and wheat. Uh, we're seeing the cattle markets explode higher. Um, so those are some of the things we're, we're uh, observing happen right now. And the same thing in the outside markets, too. Crude oil being absolutely pummeled, um, while the, the securities markets, it looks like we're seeing some money come out. So funds are starting to be more selective. This is kind of part of the maturing process of this. And some would say perhaps a bottoming action. I, I think it's premature to say that we have a bottom in all of this, um, but when you get a bottoming action, this is kind of what it looks like. Um, so from that standpoint, there, there are some glimmers of hope. Yeah, so we don't know how far into this we are We because we don't know how long this may last. But I, I was just thinking, with, with food such a precious commodity, and I, I realize we still have stocks and, and, and plenty on hand that we had going into this, but at some point, doesn't food and 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 commodities like grain doesn't their shouldn't their value go up as people start thinking about how 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 precious those things are? Uh, people do eat, um, but it changes how they eat in a crisis like this, and that does have an implication. So, from a macro standpoint, as we come out of this, I would anticipate food to be favored over energy, so to speak, initially. Um, but they're going to be selective in that. Uh, corn right now is not seen as a food commodity, but it is seen as an energy commodity. And with crude oil trading at 18-year lows this morning, therefore ethanol plants are suffering. Um, the cash basis is collapsing. The major funds are just shorting the corn market. On the other hand, wheat, um, we tend to see as people eat at home, 
um, that they consume less meat and smaller portions of what they do consume, but more grain and vegetables. Uh, one example of this is it said, kind of said that the restaurant industry accounts for 33% of the beef consumption, but 50% of its value because people tend to eat more steaks and larger portions when they're at a restaurant. If they don't finish, the leftover goes to the kitchen where it's thrown away. At home, you tend to take a smaller portion. If anything's left over, you put it in the refrigerator and finish it as leftover the next day. Um, and so that's one of the things. Now, short term, we're seeing this restocking, so to speak, because people are being told stay home for the next two to three weeks. So rather than going to restaurants, they're staying at home. Oh, I don't have enough in the freezer to last me two to three days. I better go shop. They're emptying out the retail counter of the beef and some of the other staples. And so we're seeing this change in the supply lines to supply now the consumer at the grocery store instead of the restaurant. And so beef product markets are absolutely on fire. I've never seen anything like it. Pork product markets are stronger as well, but we've got a, a greater supply of pork in the freezer right now. And so short term, that is giving us a real push. Uh, the board had fell well below where the the cash market was trading in the cattle market. Uh, we've got uh, um, packer margins now over $300 a head estimated, so the packers have incentive to go ahead and pull cattle forward, so that's helping the cash market. So that's a segment that is seeing strength in the near term. Longer term, we're seeing rumors of China buying quality milling wheat, we're seeing domestic mills saying, what if the supply lines get disrupted? We need to have our supplies for the next 30 to 90 days. So we're seeing protein basis pop 30, 50 cents a bushel in the plains for hard wheat. Um, so we're seeing a lot of different popping of different markets in the, right now this week over the last couple of days as we start to figure out what are the hot items. Yeah, interesting to see the various reactions. We're talking with Arlen Suderman with INTLFC Stone. Arlen, I keep thinking about when this is over, whenever that is. What what will change? I mean, I just don't see us going back completely to business as usual. Hopefully there's going to be a big rebound, obviously. But it seems like uh, maybe some of the trends that we're already starting take hold even more. Uh, home food delivery, online shopping. I mean, it seems like some of those things will will grow and there will be changes. I don't see everything going back just to the way it was when this is over. Well, I would agree. And uh, even though it's a different culture, we can learn some things from China and what's happening um, there as they bounce back. But I think you hit on one of the keys is the online shopping. Uh, a lot of people have been moving toward online shopping. Others don't because they're unfamiliar with it, but a crisis like this pushes them to try it. They say, oh, that does work pretty well, and we're building those infrastructures in place to really do it efficiently through this crisis. So I think online shopping will increase, allowing people to be more selective in what they want um, and get those delivery systems in place. That'll kind of establish a new part of the economy, uh, how it will change eating um, patterns will be interesting. I do think that once people feel like coming out of the house once again, we're going to see a surge in that restaurant demand, though, once again, mm -hmm. um, because people will be fed up with the cabin fever, wanting to get out, spend some money. I think that'll be a surge in the economy, help the re initial recovery. Um, so uh, get outdoors, get outside, do some of those things, eat restaurants, eat a steak, 
Um, that'll be an initial recovery, but with more online shopping moving us away from retail once again. Well, let's focus on planting. Uh, boy, anything that seems uh, like a return to normal is uh, is welcome. And planting time coming and getting out there, uh, I think with what's going on, renewed emphasis and uh, focus on uh, uh, getting a, uh, the crop in the ground and getting off to a good start. Nothing like the smell of diesel and freshly tilled soil to kind of soothe the worries and 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 uh, shut out the problems of the outside world. Uh, so how does this affect uh, acreage mix going forward? As we look at the core Corn Belt states, uh, farmers plant corn. That's what they do. They plant it in rotation with soybeans. Um, and uh, I don't expect this to have a big impact on acreage mix in those core production states. As you get a little more toward the periphery of the Midwest and you get in some areas where the ethanol plant is your primary source of selling corn, then I think it starts to uh, impact some planting decisions. But then you also have to look at what are my opportunities with soybeans, what are my opportunities with some of the alternative crops. I do think it has farmers pushing the pencil and trying to figure things out, particularly with prices this low. Bankers are going to start putting on pressure. How much money are you going to spend on inputs? And I think that's where the pressure will come is trying to finance a higher-priced corn crop and may force us away from some of the um, strengthened corn acres we might have seen otherwise. I think the industry's been looking for 94, 95. There's been some lately talking about 96 million acres of corn. This may curb some of those expectations on the higher side, pull soybeans up from those expectations of uh, the low 80s up higher into the mid-80s, perhaps trying to fill the void. There are some uh, breaks here, uh, lower diesel fuel prices, uh, some input prices down somewhat. So there are some things uh, to help out here as we go to the fields. Every crisis has its opportunity as well, uh, and uh, we're certainly seeing some uh, people take advantage of those. When you look at energy prices, uh, just initially, if you have the capacity to start locking in energy prices for the next six months to a year, we're hearing of some doing that now. Uh, eventually, we anticipate these low energy prices bringing down costs uh, for chemicals and uh for uh, other products as well that are used on the farm, uh, fertilizer, uh, which have a high uh, carbon input um, component. Um, So that gives you some opportunities as well to look at what are the pricing opportunities that are available to you in locking some of those lower input costs in. Um, And certainly interest rates for those who are carrying Mm -hmm. loans. Uh, this is a great opportunity to refinance those loans at a lower interest rate and uh, help ease some of that pressure making some of those payments. All right, Arlen, thank you very much. Uh, be safe. Thank you, you too. Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for INTL FC Stone. Up next, we're going to talk with Brock Slaybaugh, Senior Vice President, Member Services for the National Rural Health Association. How is the rural health care system prepared to deal with this coronavirus outbreak? We hear about concerns about shortage of beds, uh, masks, ventilators, uh, things like that. How is the rural health care system uh, doing in all this, and can it handle what may be coming down the road? We'll talk with Brock about that next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA.
Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, each day we hear more and more concerns about our health care system being overrun by the need for more beds, more uh, ventilators, more masks, and concerns about shortages and uh, how we're going to deal with this. Uh, what about in rural America? We know the rural health care system is already challenged in many ways. Joining us now is Brock Slaybaugh. He is a senior vice president, member services for the National Rural Health Association. Brock, thank you for joining us again. What can you tell us about preparations and readiness with our rural health care system? Well, thank you, Mike, for the opportunity to be on your show today. Um, I think that uh, our providers are doing a really a, a heck of a job trying to get ready for uh, what might come in terms of inundation of patients. I think one of the things we're going to see over the next uh, several weeks and months is the uh, clusters of these uh, outbreaks occurring. So it's not going to be like the entire country will be um, rid with uh, coronavirus infections all at once in the same place. It, it, it could erupt in different places at different times. Um, and so it, it just uh, really uh, the hospitals and, and clinics are getting, uh, getting their systems ready for these, uh, these eventualities. You know, when we hear about concerns of a, of a hospital being overwhelmed, we think, well, that's, that's in urban areas. And it wouldn't be so much in a rural area. But on the other hand, when you go to your rural grocery store, you may see what happens when they're overwhelmed and and, and shelves go bare all, all of a sudden, things you didn't think you would see happen. Could that be a, a situation that occurs in rural America or the fact that we're dealing with fewer people lessens that chance? Well, I think proportionally it all works out to be the same, actually. So um, obviously if patients are coming and presenting to their clinic with the emergency department with respiratory illness, uh, we know that uh, about 20% of the disease, based on international numbers, uh, require some form of hospitalization. Possibly as much as 5% uh, could require uh, intensive uh, sorts of care. And uh, that puts a stress on the availability of ventilators. Um, and, and more importantly, and I think that this is really where it, uh, inter- it intersects with the rural hospital, is the availability of workforce to be able to care for these critically ill patients and the uh, medications and supplies that would be needed that would be necessary to run those uh, uh, to, to take care of those patients keeping in mind that uh, our urban facilities uh, that we would normally transfer to will be full and uh, perhaps uh, inundated as well so um, so it's going to require everybody along the system uh, to be fully prepared and able to um, respond to the emergencies. I will say that one of the things that we're, we're dealing with right now, which is kind of an interesting uh, counterintuitive problem, is that many of our rural hospitals, uh, just out of concern for patient safety, are canceling uh, many of their elective and non-emergency services. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that um, patients like your listeners uh, coming to the hospital for services uh, don't want to be mixing with other patients that might have the COVID-19 disease. And so ironically, uh, because of this decrease in uh, business or volume uh, that's being experienced getting ready for possible outbreak, 
they're losing uh, money and uh, not doing well financially going forward uh, because of this cancellation of elective services. Hmm. Um, we know there's a big demand on on masks and ventilators and, and medicines and, and things like that. Are rural hospital, hospitals able to access those supplies that they need, or are they going more to the uh, to the larger urban hospitals and healthcare centers? Well, I'm hearing reports of stockouts on uh, the very items you just mentioned, and so uh, they're doing as best they can to review their policies on uh, when and how these uh, per- personal protective equipments are being uh, used. Uh, trying to be as judicious as possible and making sure that they're used only when necessary and then seeing how they can be repurposed possibly for other, uh, other, other activities, uh, within the facility. So uh, I know there's a lot of discussions going on. Uh, yes. And to, to answer the question, uh, many of our supply managers in rural hospitals are, uh, going to their suppliers, uh, ordering uh, via the computer their different uh, needs that they have in terms of supply, and then they get the word rejected or stock out uh, for that particular issue. I mean, you could go to the grocery store, like you said, Mike, there in a rural community and and see the toilet paper gone. Well, that doesn't make any sense in a respiratory um, uh, outbreak, but uh, nevertheless, I guess people want to uh, be stocked up nevertheless. Yeah, and as we uh, as we continue to try to prepare for whatever it is that that may come, as you said, uh, keeping our healthcare workers healthy that that's certainly a, a critical uh, part of this. Uh, but as you uh, as you look at these facilities and as we prepare for for what may be coming, um, what are you hearing from uh, hospitals in rural America? Are they ready for this? Are they concerned? Or what's the what are you hearing? I think that they're they're always ready, so I, I would uh, put that uh, at top of mind. Uh, they're going to do the best that they can given the resources and the um, the resources and the uh, people that they have to do it with. Uh, my my uh, advice for everybody listening to us on the radio this morning is that uh, the best defense is a good offense. So. Everyone, each one of us can take personal responsibility for keeping uh, the disease from spreading. And that would mean that uh, the best way is just to pretend as if you have the disease already yourself and you don't want to spread it to your loved ones or to those that you come into contact with. So that means that you wash your hands, uh, cough into your mouth, uh, distance yourself socially from people, hopefully at least six feet. Um, and becoming just aware of what it is, uh, and, and if you're sick, please stay home. Um, Brock, I know, I know you're very busy, and uh, we're out of time, but I hope to stay in touch with you. Thank you very okay. much for the update. Thank you. Take care. Brock Slaybaugh with the National Rural Health Association. That wraps up for today. Thanks for joining us. Hope you'll join us again tomorrow here on AOA. Be safe, everyone. <laughs> 